Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I think that we, we should continue to analyze the monetary policies on the basis of the various economies concerned and of the various cycle. As you know, the cycle in the U.S. is not at all like the cycle in Europe, uh, only because uh, if you look at unemployment, you have full employment in the U.S., and we still have uh, you know, very close to 10% unemployment in Europe. So we are in different situations. And it's uh, normal that depending on their own chart and, uh, and legislation or treaty, the various central banks are doing what is appropriate in their own environment. So I have full trust. And I, as you understand, there is a meditation at the very moment in Frankfurt. So I cannot comment in, in the meditation that takes place. But if I take you know, the principle that they have to follow their own legislation and treaty, I would say it's normal that they don't take the same decisions because they are not in the same situation. Of course, but it, it would help. And again, I know you don't want to comment out of delicacy for anything specifically on the European Central Bank. But when you look at the U.S., it's much easier for Janet Yellen to do monetary policy because she also has a president that may give the economy a little bit of a boost. Will we get it here in Europe from politicians? Well... <laughs> It is difficult, frankly speaking, to understand exactly what will be the consequences of the decisions which uh, are being taken by the new administration in the United States of America. There is an interpretation that it would foster formidably the real economy, and uh, that, that is something that the market has very much uh, understood, it seems to me, at least in the first shot. Uh, now, of course, uh, the, it is much more complicated uh, because you have also the negative side of the decisions which are taken in terms of uh, uh, real economy uh, and also in terms of uh, loss of confidence in some respect. So it seems to me that what the central bank has to do is not to take into account the political environment, but the facts, the figures and uh, draw appropriate conclusion, it seems to me, again, in the present cycle in the U.S., increase of rates are absolutely legitimate, and uh, it is clearly what the Fed intends to do. How much do you worry about productivity and the fact that in the U.S., but also in the U.K., productivity is not where it should be in this point in the cycle? Yes, I think it is probably the most important question that we have in all the advanced economies. We had a jump of productivity, fortunately, from 95 to 2005. And then we saw the productivity even before the crisis going down. And now we are still at a level of productivity growth, which is insufficient. And of course, uh, explain very well why we are growing, I have to say, a little bit miserably, both on both sides of the Atlantic. 
It's not what we would hope for. And the, there is a, a conundrum there because we know that science and technology is making enormous progress. So it will have consequences on total factor productivity. And, and that would be good consequences, but we don't see it yet. It reminds me, I'm an old boy, you know, it reminds me the solo paradox. We had a lot of investment in big uh, computer frame and we didn't see the productivity progress. But it came after a long period of time of maturing. I guess that we are more or less in the same situation. All right, Mr. Trichet, uh, good morning from uh, New York. Help me here with the future of one Europe. When I look at the calls for a stronger Deutsche Mark, a weaker Italian lira, a weaker this, a weaker that, defend for me the concept of a euro right now. Why does Germany and why does Greece need a euro? Well, you might remember that the same question was asked at the very moment of the dramatic crisis we had uh, in at the beginning of the of the 2010, you know, and uh, everybody was expecting both countries, as you just said, uh, to leave and to quit because uh, because one was supposed to prefer its national currency, the previous national currency, and the other one would reject the uh, uh, adjustment and the austerity. But the result was exactly the contrary. As you remember, Germany decided, of course, to help Greece, and Greece decided to stay and obliged its own government to stay. The last figure I have is that 81% of the Germans are in, on board with the euro, and that a very large majority also of the Greeks are on board with the euro. So you, you have an underlying support for the euro which has proved in the crisis much more, much stronger than was expected. And only to remind you, we were 15 at the moment of Lehman Brothers collapse. We are 19 today, so four new countries got in. So we should not underestimate the underlying strength of the European Union right. and, of course, of the euro itself. That being said, we have a lot of hard work to do, right. a lot of homework to do, and uh, it's, it's a, a disgrace that we don't do these structural reforms that are absolutely necessary. Nathan Sheets joins us here in New York, former Undersecretary for International Affairs at the U.S. Treasury Department, now a visiting fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Good to see you. Again, I think I last saw you a few months back. You were in government. Uh, I was flying with you and the, the Secretary of the Treasury, then Secretary of the Treasury from Bogota to, to Mexico City. And I want to ask you, before we get into the data and all that we know about the, the global economy, uh, let's start with the anecdote. What's your sense of how the economy is doing from all of the travel you did? You were on the road uh, weeks out of every month, months out of every, out of every year. Indeed. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, my sense is that the global economy is doing right now maybe a notch better than it was six or 12 months ago. I think part of that is uh, an inventory uh, cycle, and we're now moving, moving to a more uh, supportive part. That, of course, is a temporary effect. But the question is, is then... Does that pass through into more investment uh, and ultimately into more productivity growth for the global economy? And I think we're seeing this basic story play out uh, to some extent in the United States, but also Europe's looking a little better. 
and for the near term at least, the Chinese economy is looking a little bit more solid. Yeah, you spent a lot of time traveling to, to China as well. I hope we can talk a little bit a, a, about that uh, as well. We, we speak about Pax Americana in the context of, of foreign policy, the role that the U.S. plays uh, in the world. Let's talk about that in the context of, of economics. Um, as you were traveling, what was the sense, the perception of the, the role that the U.S. is playing, and, and do, you, do you detect that that's changing this uh, at is, all? This is such a, a, a crucial issue. Uh, the U.S. is certainly looked to as uh, first among equals. The U.S. is looked to to provide leadership in the economic space, be that on issues like the WTO or the IMF or in the G20 or the, the G7. And I think that right now, the rest of the world is looking at the United States and asking the new administration, what are your intentions in terms of economic leadership going forward? I think that this is, uh, this is an issue that's being uh, uh, deliberated on inside the administration. And I hope that they come to the conclusion, as other administrations have in previous decades, both Republicans and Democrats, that uh, U.S. leadership is in the global interest, but importantly and crucially, it's very much in U.S. interest. I recall talking to your former boss about the G7 and the G20, and he would become incredibly animated. This was incredibly important to him to have these sort of multilateral institutions. As we look ahead to next week, when uh, central bankers and finance ministers are going to descend on, on Germany for a G20 meeting, um, what's the argument you would make to, to Stephen Mnuchin, now the Treasury Secretary, to, to your counterparts at Treasury now about the importance of the G20 uh, when it comes to economic policy? Well, uh, we learned, we learned clearly that there are certain things that require international cooperation, uh, that there are issues like uh, international financial regulation, where we're all interlinked. And what happens in the United States influences the rest of the world, but the rest of the world influences the United States as well. And we must, we must work together. Uh, so uh, the advantages uh, for us as a country are enormous. And then I'd say the other, the other argument I'd make is that uh, the clear empirical uh, record of the past decades is that U.S. global integration and U.S. leadership has been a key driver of, of U.S. and global growth. Uh, that uh, these are uh, linchpins of the progress that we've seen in the U.S. and global economy through the post-war period. What should we be listening for uh, as the Treasury Secretary travels to, to Germany? Uh, it was a big moment when Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, went to Belgium and then to Munich for the Munich Security Conference and began to uh, lay out his, his policy platform. I, I imagine the same thing is going to happen here with Steve Mnuchin. What, what should we be listening for from him as he begins to do that? So, uh, first of all, uh, hopefully we will hear from him a uh, continued commitment to U.S. leadership and U.S. involvement, vigorous involvement uh, in international fora. So I'd say that's one key question. A second key question is how committed is the United States to a free and open trading order across the globe? Uh, and then I'd say a third set of issues that bears on the G20, G7 mandate directly is what kind of uh, position is the United States going to be taking on global currency issues? Uh, what does the communique say about, uh, about exchange rates? We've had this strong dollar policy for, for a while now. Is it your sense that that continues? Have you, have you heard in the muddle of sort of uh, you know, <laughs> what's going to happen, uh, 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 market changes in, in policy, or are we still waiting to hear? 
I think that that is another issue that the administration is, uh, is reflecting on. So on the one hand, uh, my sense is that the strong dollar policy has served the United States well uh, over, the last, uh, over the last several decades. On the other hand, as a new administration comes in, I think it's perfectly appropriate for the new administration to reflect on uh, a whole range of policies that they've inherited from their predecessors. And I would put the, the strong dollar policy in, in that category. Uh, and uh, they may come to a conclusion that they want to modify it in some way. But I think that the crucial point is that that should be the result of a thorough, ongoing, deliberative, thoughtful process and not just a visceral kind of response. So uh, I think they're, they're thinking it through. So far, uh, they've uh, been more ambiguous mm. uh, uh, on their views of the dollar than previous administrations have been. Nathan Sheets with us here at the uh, Wheels Up Power Breakfast at the Pier Hotel. Nathan Sheets, visiting fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, former Undersecretary for International Affairs at the U.S. Treasury Department. This is Bloomberg Surveillance here, brought to you by the Audit, Tax, and Advisory Professionals at Eisner Amper LLP. I was struck over the course of your tenure by how much the Treasury Department relied on uh, and implemented sanctions. It became a real policy tool there. Uh, I don't think that it, it was covered enough. But when you look at the, the role of the Treasury Department, that was clearly a, a way in which the, the Treasury Department expanded its powers. Could you talk just a bit about, I mean, the, one of the first moves we saw here when President Trump came to office was the expansion of sanctions against uh, Iran. Uh, this is a new tool in the toolkit or, or a tool being used differently, I suppose, by, by Treasury. Uh, the the sanctions policy is is powerful uh, uh, as uh, it has been developed. It is increasingly effective. Uh, for example, with Ukraine, we were able in responding to Russian aggression to tailor those sanctions in a way that uh, uh, maximized the impact on Russia while minimizing the blowback uh, into the global economy. So I think you're absolutely right. The tool is developing. It's uh, uh, being used in more flexible kinds of ways to achieve uh, given outcomes. Now, that said, I also think there's a risk that we need to balance against that of overusage uh, and over-reliance on it. So I think that uh, the sanctions approaches, on the one hand, are powerful, but on the other hand, must be used very selectively. You mentioned uh, China, and um, I was with the Treasury Secretary when he was in Beijing for the Strategic and Economic uh, Dialogue, uh, another example of the sort of robust multilateral uh, dialogues that we had here uh, over the last few years. How does that relationship stand today? How did you leave that relationship, and, and what's your greatest concern going forward here? Again, there, there's been so much rhetoric. Uh, how, how, what's the integrity of that relationship like right now? Uh, the, the relationship that we left was uh, robust, vigorous, and very, very frank. We were able to work together on areas where we were in agreement. Uh, we spoke extremely candidly uh, about areas of disagreement, and I think that we were we were uh, pushing pushing the ball forward. Uh, the the nature, the tone of the relationship going forward, I think is is an open issue. But frankly, uh, I think that Beijing uh, more broadly is watching what's going on in Washington. And to the extent that the U.S. chooses to step back from international leadership, I think that Beijing is uh, looking at this very much as an opportunity for them to increase their international leadership. And we've seen this, uh, for example, President Xi's speech in Davos, where he became a, uh, a, a forceful advocate for globalization. 
talk about people who are doing serious work uh, in Washington, D.C. Nathan Sheets with yes. us here uh, now, former Undersecretary for International Affairs at the Treasury Department, someone who put in a lot of service uh, at the Federal Reserve uh, as well. And let's, uh, let's start by, by going there. Uh, we saw an amazing reversal last week. The, the, the rhetoric, the quantity of speeches, and the pivot that we saw last week was, was extraordinary. Uh, what was your reaction to what you, what you heard last week? So, uh, on the one hand, I don't remember a time where there was such a coord- apparently coordinated uh, uh, communications uh, effort by members of the FOMC. Many, many, many of them, you know, in a, in a very synchronized fashion, said March is very much on the table. I think the underlying motivation for that is if you're in a place where the economy is looking pretty good and you're thinking, well, I may need to do two or even three uh, this year. Uh, why not do one in March, kind of put it in the bank? We're saying it gives you a lot of optionality through the, through the rest of the year. And I think that's the rationale. If you don't go in March and it ends up needing to be three in 2017, the, the back end of the year has got to be perfect to do June, September, and December. You were, you're working there as an, as an economist, as an economic advisor. Uh, I wonder if then... Uh, you heard this sort of rhetoric, this sort of political noise that the Fed hears today. How, how you turn that out, tune that out when you're when you're there doing uh, doing work within the Eccles building? So I would say first of all, through most of my tenure at the Fed, uh, the politicalization of the Fed was much less pronounced mm. than it is today. Nevertheless, through the through the years of the financial crisis, it was it was ramping up, and I think that there is a very much a sense inside the building that they are there to find the best technical solution to the problems uh, that the economy faces, and that uh, ultimately it's the chairman who has to uh, deal with uh, the political elements of it. So they do a very good job of insulating the policy process from these these political pressures. Dr. Sheets, I want you to ask the question that everybody in America wants to know. i got to look up his title, it's so long. Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs. Those people are not populated right now across all of our different administrative cabinet positions. People like you aren't in the hallways of the buildings. What does that mean for the running of a successful government? The, the top aides, advisors, experts uh, that, uh, that support and help and guide uh, cabinet officers, they're not there. And uh, I think that that uh, limits the capacity of the government to uh, make decisions and, importantly, to work through a number of, of, of key issues and policies. Does it, how does it faces. change debate? How does it change debate that a wise guy like you is not there to say, hey, stupid, <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about? So the, the role that I played and others uh, like me inside the Treasury and other agencies is to act as a sounding board uh, for uh, the secretary. And uh, you know, there's no sanding board to the same extent. Now, I should quickly add that right. the senior civil servants are a very talented group, but they come from a different backgrounds right. and uh, perspective and aren't in a position to be as no. frank and candid with the cabinet-level officers mm. as we were. Yeah. Dr. Sheets, thank you so much for joining us this morning, formerly with Citigroup and now at the Peterson uh, Institute. The undersecretary joins, among others, Olivier Blanchard and Jason Furman. It's a powerhouse. It is. They're, they're, they, they, write almost, they write like once a month, yeah. too. It's amazing. <laughs> 
They actually work. I mean, Posen works a longer work That's true, yeah, yeah. Most of them do. But anyways, Nathan, she's, thank you uh, so much. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Mr. Jamie Diamond, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, is here with us. Uh, thank you for joining us. We talk about economy, we talk about business, we talk about politics. What are your clients, your institutional clients, but your big corporate investment clients are most worried about? So first of all, happy to be here. Uh, this is an unbelievable J.P. Morgan conference and uh, with some of the best investors in the world, some of the best speakers in the world. Uh, you know, the business and economy go hand in hand. So if you actually look at the economic indicators around the world, America's doing okay, China's doing it 6% plus, Europe is doing better than people thought, Japan is doing better than people thought. And so the economic indicators are pretty good. And I think business in the U.S. is growing confidence because, they, because of policies, you know, if we have right tax policy, infrastructure policy. So, uh, you know, the investment world is always a little confused about what it all means, of course. So, and, the, and the biggest concerns are not business or economy, but I will, I'll say policy. And so it would be more around trade, we're going to get that right, or obviously North Korea and things like that. Are, are you confused about what this all means? What is President Trump and his administration actually going to do for the U.S. economy? Yeah. I, look, I think it, here's what's very positive, okay? Look at the policy. Forget the tweets. Uh, look at the people on the ground. They're top professionals, both in the military, defense, secretary of state, secretary of treasury, uh, Gary Cohn, national economic advisor, serious people with deep knowledge and deep experience. And their mission is to have a growth agenda. And that agenda is reducing corporate taxes, uh, starting to build better infrastructure, which we desperately need, uh, reducing some of the regulatory regime, which would probably hold back growth. I think a growth agenda is good for all Americans, middle class, low paid, job creation. So, and you, what you saw recently is business conferences have jumped a lot, yeah. but more than it's ever jumped before in a life, probably because of the pro-growth agenda. Do you have any doubt that he'll be able to follow through? You know, look, I'm not. I've been watching politics like you for years. They have the Republicans have the House, they have the Senate, they have uh, 30 plus of the governorships. They have a better chance of getting those things done. I don't know the exact timetable, and you know, obviously, it's, the sources have to be made. So the kind of the euphoria from the positive growth and pro-business is there. But now they have to do this stuff, and so I, I, I'm pretty high confident to get it done. Remember, the Democrats acknowledge that corporate taxes are too high in the terrain in America. Everyone wants good infrastructure. The reason the Republicans didn't like it is to we waste money, not because they are against bridges, tunnels, roads. Uh, and most people acknowledge now that it's time to look at the regulatory regime and kind of relook at it and, and recalibrate it and make sure that it's both conducive to growth and doesn't hurt small business formation and things like that. Jamie Diamond, what is the one question that actually you get asked the most by, by your big clients? Is, is oh. it on Trump? Or, or is it on China? How come you won't uh, take our deposits? Uh, literally, I just had that. It's like, how come uh, the cost of repo is so high? Uh, so these are investing clients, you know, and uh, you know, we provide a lot of research and execution. But, but I, in the, in, around, it's mostly around the new administration. That's, tr that's traditional. I mean, you have a change of leadership. You know, people are going to be both concerned, uh, uh, interested, et cetera. And around the world, it's Trump. I mean, mostly about Trump. So, uh, but today at lunch, uh, I asked, I went around the table and said, what do you all want to talk about at lunch? And we, we didn't get to Trump until the seventh question. So that, the that hasn't happened since he's been made president. What was the first? The, the repo first, question. Uh, the first was the clash of civilization, a lot about regulatory, 
uh, inclusive capitalism and things like that. Okay, and, and this is because they're concerned that it will actually affect their investments, or, be, or, or because it's more intellectuals trying to, to be smarter about they, how they need to invest in the I future. Think they're, they're thinking more long term. Right. So you know, I think capitalism can do a better job of creating jobs, middle wages, helping skills, helping get kids jobs, helping lower wages. So one of the reasons I took on the business roundtable leadership chairmanship, and we have a great new CEO is because I think business should play its part in promoting what's good for all Americans and, you know, including expanding things like the earned income tax credit. And so inclusive capitalism, I agree. Now, most of the big companies, they are socially advanced. They give medical benefits. They train their people. Uh, but they could do, we could do a better job, come up with policies that are better for the communities. That's true, I think, in Europe. It's true in the United States. And, and it almost can't be done without business. You know, education, it's important that businesses hire the people. No, so. But do you think this is, comes, it was a trend that was before, or did President Trump actually waken up the animal spirits? I, it seems like he's woken up the animal spirits. You know, some, one of the CEOs came out of one of those meetings and says, we've never had such a pro-business president since the founding fathers. Now, I'm not sure that's true, but, but consumer confidence, small business confidence, business confidence all skyrocketed. Because, because it's a growth agenda. Will it be difficult to implement? And I'm thinking of, you know, if you look at a lot of the indices, a lot of the markets, because we saw record highs, how much of what is expected is priced in? And if he doesn't deliver, even if he d doesn't deliver a tiny bit, are we going to see a correction? Yeah, so I don't, honestly, I don't worry that much about that. So I think stocks went up maybe rationally because of the, because of the growth agenda. Now they have to do it. And I think they'll get it done. It's just going to take time. It's going to be a lot of press. You guys are going to have a lot of fun talking about what tax scheme and what infrastructure scheme and how it's all going to work and it's as good as he promised. But if he gets it done, even part of it, it'll be good for growth, good for jobs, good for Americans. So I, I am fairly confident he'll get that done. Will he get it right, the regulation for Wall Street banks? I hope so. You know, we've been trying. You know, we, I hear people say, we can't. we had a crisis, we're going to throw out all the doctrine. No one's asking for that. We want, we want to be a reasoned voice to look at those things inside, not just Dodd-Frank, but regulation that need to be recalibrated, coordinated. There are too many people involved in mortgages. We don't have mortgage rules yet. It's hurting, and this is hurting lower paid, first time buyers, small business owners. We need to do it for the sake of all people. So, you know, just it, no one, when it was done, could rationally say everything done that was proper, fair, coordinated, consistent. So we're just saying just open it up. Have an intelligent conversation about what's working, what are the side effects of this, what are the unintended consequences, and, and can we get the economy going faster? If you don't have a healthy financial system, you are not going to have a healthy economy. And, and just keep that in mind. It's not, and that's, it's good, good for the citizens of the country. It's not good for the financial players. It's good for the citizens of the country. And you know, damaging the financial system is a bad idea if you want jobs and growth. But, but Jamie Dimon, you feel that this dialogue with the Trump administration is healthy and, and actually constructive. Yes. So he's actually consulting a lot of CEOs through Gary Cohn or, or with him directly? Directly through Gary Cohn, through Steve Mnuchin. You know, the CEOs are part of the dialogue. They should always have been. You know, President Obama spoke to CEOs too. But I think that, again, I'm a firmly a collaboration will win. You know, finger pointing won't. And so there are solutions to problems. You know, I always say, what do you want the outcome to be? Then how are we going to get there? And I think, you know, if you have civic society, business collaborating together. So I applaud his outreach. I applaud his pro-business. I think some of these businesses are some of the finest institutions on the planet. We really try to take care of our people and our clients. And I remind people, even in the crisis, we didn't need government help. We were trying to help people. And so, you know, I want to, I want, I really want to make sure that we do our job helping grow and, you know, helping the economy, the economy of the world be better. I've, I've spoken to a lot of European banking CEOs in the last couple of weeks who are terrified that if Donald Trump deregulates Wall Street too much, you're not in the level playing field anymore with Europe. Look, I'm, I, I, I think international cooperation is a good thing. 
So while there's been criticism about Basel, and I think some are legitimate, I think at the end of the day, when uh, you know Steve Mnuchin and Gary Cohn get involved, they'll work out things with Basel that make sense for everybody. We don't want an a level playing field. It's not unlevel today. Actually, American banks have far more capital and far more liquidity requirements. But the fact is, I want the European banks to thrive. I, if the European banks don't thrive, Europe will not thrive. And so, you know, to me, the regulators should really look at those things that can help the European banks compete and thrive uh, to, to grow their economies. And much more important in Europe than the United States because they finance 70 or 80 percent of the economy here. In the United States, the banks only finance 25 percent. The rest is done through the capital markets activities. So what are the chances of the U.S. ignoring the, the rest of the regulation in the world? You talked about Basel. Do you think, are you absolutely certain that they will, well, remember, they, they will reach the, an agreement? The U.S. gold-plated Basel made it harder, added things. And I, I'm hoping they reduce some of that so that ours is closer to Basel. And I hope that Basel takes a deep breath and makes sure that this next round of things, they don't like it being called Basel IV, but that this next round is, is properly calibrated to both enhance safety and soundness and enhance growth. And they should be looking at both, not just at one. Which means what? Is it smarter regulation? Smarter regulation. So not, not more or less, just smarter. So like, you know, certain rules, you know, if you look at the United States, I think mortgages would have been half a trillion dollars more had we proper securitization rules, proper legal safe harbors, uh, uh, things like that. People have been very reluctant. A lot of banks have gone out of mortgages. I think in the United States, and the Federal Reserve said it recently, small business formation is lower. First time it's ever been net negative recovery uh, because small businesses tend to generate in a, in a recovery. So net formation is negative for the first time, partially because of credit. A lot of banks, not just big ones, just got out of a whole bunch of small business and certain unintended, and they're always unintended consequences of regulations. Regulators should look at that. So one of the unintended ones, probably out of CCAR, is, the, is how hard it is to hold certain small business, certain real estate loans, certain SME loans. And because of that, banks are pulling back to manage their CCAR risk. How do you rate the European banking system at the moment? Are we going to see more consolidation? We've tried to fix the Italian banks. Yeah. I don't know if you think it's successful or not. Deutsche Bank is, is trying to raise we, capital. We, we are we that, over the worst? We were that close to fixing Monte de Pasci. We knew it was hard. I'm so proud of our people for doing it. it we could have gotten it done, and I hope it gets done. The banking problems aren't as big as people say. So Monte de Pasha took about 40 billion of bad loans. No, it was only so much on the balance sheet, so much already been written off. We think five or six billion of new capital would fix the problem. And so uh, I, I would like to see the banks, first of all, in the old days, banks were going pan-European. Because of the crisis and new rules, they've kind of been going back to home. I, I think the right way was pan-European, a pan-European regulator. Uh, it's better, they're more diversified, it creates more efficiencies in the system. I don't know what the long run is. So I think eventually you'll see mergers and acquisitions among European banks again. But that comes from, that has come from, from what, CEOs? The, the problem is that if you, if you make well, two I, I think it's regulators. weak banks, I think it's the regulators. regulators have to say what they actually want, whether it's good or not, and then allow it. If they don't allow you to use capital in this country to support capital here, if, they don't allow, if anything done cross-border is heavily uh, punished through capital, it won't happen. So some of the things we do, anything cross-border is bad. So you want to reduce it. All things being equal, we reduce it substantially, and you know it hurts some of the parties. We have no choice. We have to meet the new uh, rules and requirements. So uh, uh, we're in Paris with Jamie Diamond. I want to see the European banks thrive. That's what I want to say. Okay, because this is good for your competition, or, or again, this just means the stability of this region. I want which is it because it's good for the, the citizens of Europe, including the low-paid ones. I think people don't look at this clearly. You know, with this constant being up on banks, and if you have the European banks still deleveraging. They can't finance growth. And so, you know, you're going to have other people come in and do it. But, you know, some of the investors here are buying, quote, bad assets or assets out of uh, European banks. But 
but their job is to help grow the economy. What are the chances that the uh, Theresa May's government preserves the financial sector for, I, I for really London? don't know. Remember, it's not up to just her. She has to negotiate with 27 other people, each of them effectively has a veto. And you know, no one wants to see disruption. You know, uh, some politicians always like they want to punish Britain. Others are much more rational and thoughtful about how you want to go about and have a good relationship with Britain. So I, I just don't know. You know, again, I, as the CEO of this company, I have to prepare for the contingencies. If you, if any one of your viewers were on my board of directors, you would say, you may think A, B, or C. I want you to be prepared for A, B, and C. <laughs> That's a slightly different way of how we have to look at it. Where do you think people will move to? I don't know yet. You, Are you, you looking? Guys, do you have people coming to you and pitching? You, you and guys have mentioned all the major cities. Yeah. We're going to look at all and talk to people and try to figure out all things being equal. And eventually we'll be looking in much more detail at local cities. What will Europe look like in five years? Do you spend a lot of time, and you were talking about the, you know, the strength of the, of the financial system, which is necessity for, um, I guess, stability in this region. Yeah. Is the euro going to implode? So Europe, look, I, I've always said that the European Union is one of the great achievements of mankind ever. You know, to, to have a 27, 28 nations live in peace and hold hand and make political decisions and, you know, not wars and, and, uh, and having a common market is also very smart. And it kind of got bogged down a little bit. You know, the British obviously thought it was too much. Uh, and there are issues that to be dealt with. But when you talk to the politicians, they, they're devoted to keeping together. They're devoted to moving forward. I wish there should be a little more devotion to looking at what the problems are that are creating some of these concerns among the populations of the country, like you can have a, a vote in France soon. So, uh, you know, the, the worst case is that someone major decides to leave the monetary union at one point, and that's, that's hugely disruptive. Now, there's no one who says we're going to do that. There are some people running who are saying they're going to do it. So, you know, you, that's the other fear. That's the, you got to see what the politics of the situation is. Okay, but are these votes of protest, and how do politicians reconnect with the people that are electing them? Yeah, I, I think so, and I think there's a legitimate, you know, if you ask, I think it's true in Europe and it's true in the United States, middle-class incomes have not gone up, low wages have not gone up, we haven't created enough jobs, there's too much unemployment in young men in, in Europe, and, and meanwhile they saw us fight wars, they saw us uh, uh, waste money, they saw us do all these things. And they're saying, wait a second, let's, let's help the average people of our, of our country. So it's true. Right. But, but the way you're going to do that, the, the next part is, how do you do that? Right. Right. Which and I that, was going to ask you. Good tax policy. Right. Good training, skills, schools. Redistribution uh, I, of wealth? Yeah, I think there should be some, yeah. But like, you know, we in the United States, there's a thing called the Earned Income Tax Credit, where if you earn $7 an hour and you're a single mother with children, the government will pay you three. Your wages go from 15000 a year to twenty-one. Most of us already pay that. So the big companies, we're already way above that in general. Yeah. But that would help jobs, dignity. Studies okay. show that people get jobs, they like to work. It's, and remember, it's the first, you know, unlike what the liberals think, it's the first rung in the ladder where they usually moves on. It's good for social values because it allows you to form a household and have children and buy a car to get to work. And it's good for small business. So that is great for society. And so I think we have to come up with examples that actually fix the problems. Skills train is another one, which Germany does great, and the rest of us don't. One last question. Would you ever go into politics? No, I don't think so, no. Why? I don't think I'm suited to politics. That's too late. I'm, I'm 61 years old. I love my company. Uh, I think I could do a lot to help America from my, the platform I have today. Jamie Diamond, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. The CEO there of JP Morgan. We're in Paris, of course, at this 2017 Global Markets Conference. The Wheels of Power Breakfast, the Pier Hotel, nice turnout so far. I think the weather 
maybe as it's a perfect day to walk in Midtown Manhattan. Yeah, you made you made the, the pilgrimage. Yeah. Plus, you don't have the Trump the Trump security folks on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> we're just north of that. It's a little cra- less crazy than it was say 90 days ago. Yeah. Uh, we're north of that, up past Bergdorf Goodman, and he hasn't here, been spending much time here. It's, no, it's, it's, no, it's the golf Florida course, and the Midtown Manhattan Golf Course, and Chelsea, <laughs> Chelsea Piers <laughs> isn't doing still it closed for the, the President of the yeah. United States. We're awaiting uh, Francine Lacroix's conversation with Mr. Diamond uh, of J.P. Morgan. Right now, Steve Whiting with us. And Steve, the, the, in the ter- amazing news flow, oil, not through resistance, but nevertheless, the hallmark of oil below 50. How right did you and your team get of the ramifications of a move in oil from 100 to 29 to 50 and the effect on the American economy? In hindsight, did you get it right? Well, I think, um, you know, hindsight is 2020. I think Ed Morse on his team, you got a pretty good which team. has done, you know, a really fantastic fundamental job of just seeing the American energy boom, noting the effects. Uh, and maybe not getting the timing right, because I think that period, that that 2011 to 2014 period where U.S. supply was gushing, displacing the world, and the oil price held up for so long, that was probably uh, the surprise. And, you know, ultimately, he was extremely helpful for us um, in avoiding uh, petrol-sensitive emerging markets, avoiding petrol-sensitive debt uh, towards the end of that period, and then getting right back in. Uh, and altering our allocations to to really get positively geared on oil, and I tell you that uh, the you know the city oil team has been cautious very near term. Uh, now, I think you've got to remember that uh, petroleum is the commodity that does nothing but boom and bust, and the fact that uh, you know exploration activity around the world's down 60 percent over the past two years, you know positions it differently. I don't think you are looking at uh, a January 2016 situation again. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's been a meaningful recovery, a doubling from that low. Are you surprised at the integrity of this uh, deal with OPEC and non-OPEC producers that, that it seems like most members, most parties to that deal have upheld their, their end of the bargain? Well, it's fascinating. And, you know, one of the things that we hear is that just real long-term thinking. Now, I don't know if we're doing a lot of real long-term thinking. Um, you know, you take a look uh, what's happened uh, in the United States. It's been really remarkable flexible supply response. I think that the U.S. is going to get a larger share of global petroleum uh, output, uh, and uh, that's great for volume statistics. Uh, a lot of businesses that are tied uh, to, uh, you know, American energy production. Uh, but, uh, you know, it does mean that further out, uh, the price recovery is not going to be as extreme. I mean, you know, shale has you know, lower the equilibrium price. I imagine you've been thinking a lot about what's happening, not happening uh, in Washington, D.C. Looked at your note about uh, the Affordable Care Act, and you noted that it would have uh, fiscal consequences, changing or removing uh, that law. How, how are you watching what's unfolding there, and, and what could those consequences be uh, largely? Well, look, the how financing health care changes, what changes on the margin there, you know, are not impor- as important to us in terms of driving the economic outlook, the market outlook, as to whether or not they accomplish uh, these big, big tax cuts that the president talked about uh, in his speech. You're quoting him there. Yes, I'm <laughs> quoting him there. So, um, you know, whether the corporate uh, tax goes to 20 percent, what kind of offsets there are? Is there a, some element of a border adjustment tax? Um, you know, whether we get uh, income tax rates down significantly, you know, all of these things depend on, you know, one or two uh, votes this year, and they really will have only well, one or two chances to do this a uh, simple majority. Is Citibank, you know, within the 30, 40 people that you deal with every day and trying to come up with a, a nation and worldview, 
have you changed your timeline of what you just said based on what you've observed from the healthcare debate of literally the last 72 hours? No, I absolutely not. I can't. <laughs> president Trump's been president. Is it six or seven six, months? Six or seven weeks. <laughs> yeah, we, it's we, unreal. We just talked about this on the walk over to the Pierre Hotel. The, you know, Shh, don't tell him we walked. The Sikorsky <laughs> folks was, uh -oh. was down today. It was in Paris with Francine shepherding around. No, no, but the, you know, the idea that, okay, we know everything in a couple days, you know, when the timeline, you know, is the next five months, you know, even where we go on the European elections, mm. you know, the French election out uh, in a couple of months, we're going to have lots of drama over this. And to just presume, you know, because of the news of the last couple of days, I mean, you would have made that mistake back in 2009 with the passage of the ACA. Patiently waiting, Stephen Whiting of Citigroup, uh, through our uh, James Diamond interview, you spent a lot of uh, time with us this morning. Uh, Steve Whiting, help us here on Morning in America. I mean, Mr. Diamond obviously talking his book, his CEOs are want uh, to do. Where is the Citigroup estimate of American GDP? Because the first quarter is a little shaky, right? Yes. Well, look, you know, you just saw the trade deficit um, blow out uh, in the month of January. Um, you've seen uh, auto sales, which, you know, uh, have reached remarkably good levels, um, just not pick up further. So some of the sentiment readings um, have, you know, burned higher. Now, I did get very good news uh, yesterday out of the ADP report, and it looks like headcount uh, may continue to outperform with tomorrow's em employment data. Uh, but, you know, this early part of the year, you know, we've had higher energy costs, higher consumer prices, uh, and uh, no tax cuts yet. So it really comes down to, again, this little gap period here um, of higher prices and uh, no new stimulus. And uh, when we look out later uh, with the likelihood that we will get uh, substantial personal income tax cuts, I think that you will see uh, also an investment response. You'll see a pickup in growth, but it's closer to the turn of the year into 2018. It was destined to be a strengthening outlook more in calendar 2018. Chetney Diamond said in Europe the banking problems are not as big as some people say, what's he seeing that we're not uh, when he looked at the European banking system? Well, um, you know, there was the mention of uh, the ability to take bad assets uh, and sell, send those to other investors. Uh, and the reality is the world is still quite willing to take risk. Uh, it's able to recapitalize banks. It's able to take advantage of uh, discounted assets where they see that. Uh, and so this is not the environment of, let's say, 2009, which would be the complete opposite, where even, you know, sort of lots of good investments uh, had remarkably high yields and it became impossible, you know, to uh, to get investors to even take a, a really good opportunity. We started I, off just talking about um, the prospects for tax reform and, and, and uh, changes to the Affordable Care Act. How about regulation? Jamie Dimon talked about that some, that he said nobody's proposing here a, a wholesale redo of Dodd-Frank or taking away Dodd-Frank completely. How do, how do you factor in sort of what, um, you know, what changes to that could make? Well, I think if anybody um, wants to sort of a quantitative estimate of like how much deregulation means for, for GDP, they're not going to have an historical basis to right. go on this. Uh, but, you know, a lot of these things are sunk costs. I mean, we, uh, the financial system uh, has had a remarkable remarkable recapitalization in the United States, more than in other regions. Uh, bank equity capital, just tangible common equity levels. Forget what the banks have done in terms of leverage ratios, they've doubled. Now that's a sunk cost. If you don't have to add to that cost going forward, it's great relief. Yeah, but in the great distortion that we're living, and you're, you're truly one of the experts of linking profits to the American economy, when do we get normal behavior, animal spirits of American companies? They're not investing. 
they've got cheap, funny money to do all sorts of big deals with. When do we get back to normal, given the new enthusiasm about animal spirits? Look, I think that American companies, you know, are not going to be so incredibly uh, bullish that they will experiment a great deal uh, and, you know, sort of uh, take a lot of chances on just wasted investment. Now, in a yeah. lot of those cases, you know, you look well, back and you said, well, that was a very strong growth rate, but it wasn't sustainable. Right. So I think there's a good chance that we pick up some, okay. that we move the needle up, but it's not going to be an investment boom. Stephen Whiting, thank you so much for sitting here this morning. Thank you for perspective across our early morning hours. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.